Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hey everybody, this is Cheyenne Homan. I'm your host. This is Office Hours, Conversations with UK Faculty. And to start us off this week, we've got kind of a good back-to-school theme. Peggy Keller uh, joined us in the studio a little bit earlier, and we're going to play back her interview about school start times and uh, student achievement. And then later in the hour, we are going to have Kevin Holm Hudson. But to start off, Peggy is uh, an associate professor in psychology, um, specializing in developmental psychology, family stress, and also is affiliated with the Health Society and Populations program at the College of Arts and Sciences. Okay, so I am an associate professor in the Department of Psychology. My area of specialty is developmental psychology. Okay, so explain developmental psychology. What does that mean? Developmental psychology is basically a field where you do research on human development. There are two main branches. One focuses on cognitive development and the other one, which is what I focus on, is social social and emotional development. And so your most recent study was about the amount of sleep that kids get in relation to how they learn at school? Well, more specifically, it was about school start times. Okay. Okay, so how did you sort of distill the information for your research question from this data? What we did is we went to the Kentucky Department of Education website. They make data publicly available on each school's average test score in a variety of different subjects. And they also provide additional information on things like the teacher-student ratio, uh, as well as uh, the percent of students that are of a variety of different ethnicities and the percent of students receiving free or reduced cost lunch, a variety of variables on general school functioning and student life. We then had to figure out how to get the start times. Those are not data that are made publicly available. No one records that information. So what we had to do was actually go to the website of every public school in the state of Kentucky, and if the website did not state the start time, we called the school and talked to the secretary for the school and asked them just real quick, (laughs) what time do you start? And we recorded that information. So we added that as a variable to all of the data that are provided by the Kentucky Department of Education. And so what did you find? We found a lot of very interesting things. The major finding is that Uh, focusing just on elementary schools, uh, which had, in comparison to middle and high schools, greater variability in start times. And we found that those that started later had higher standardized test scores, on average, in all subjects. All subjects, and by a fairly substantial amount. We also looked at the school's rank. So schools of the same level, elementary school, 
are compared against each other. And so the best school would have a ranking of 99 and the worst school would have a ranking of 1. We found that an hour difference in start time uh, was associated with a 14 point difference in school rank for elementary schools. That's a big difference. Um, however, for most of these associations, they weren't observed when we looked at schools that were serving students uh, with a high percentage of free or reduced cost lunch eligibility. So those schools that were serving middle and upper class students, start times were associated with better outcomes. But for those schools that were in more impoverished regions, serving impoverished populations, school start times didn't seem to make much of an impact uh, at those, uh, for those schools. And so you did this um, just for the state of Kentucky for elementary school students? Just for the state of Kentucky, yes. It took us about a year to collect all of those data and analyze them. Uh, we have a grant that is currently under review that will expand the analysis to four different states. So we're really excited about that. It'll take us a year before we even find out whether that will be funded. So what states would you want to compare Kentucky to? Sure. We are interested, we've proposed four states, and we chose states that were either really struggling with academic achievement, um, had high proportions of minority students, which is a little bit different from Kentucky, were predominantly white, uh, or that had very large income gaps. Uh, so we chose Connecticut and New York. Those are states with very large income gaps, the largest in the country. We also um, noticed that in Connecticut, they have the largest educational gaps based on race. So the difference between whites and Hispanics and whites and blacks are very large in Connecticut. Um, I think maybe Wisconsin has roughly the same uh, gaps, but it's pretty bad. And we want to know whether start times can be used to reduce educational gaps. They've been proposed uh, to play a role in educational gaps, but no one's ever actually tested whether it'll help, so that's where I come in. So Connecticut and New York, and then the other two are Mississippi and New Mexico. Mississippi and New Mexico are just perennially on the bottom of the, the ladder in terms of educational outcomes. They tend to do the poorest. They also have very large proportions of minority students. Mississippi obviously has a, a good percentage of African Americans. New Mexico has a large percentage of um, Hispanics and also Native Americans, a population that has largely been ignored. So what motivated you to do this kind of research? I've always been interested in sleep. So after I got my doctorate, I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Auburn University, and my advisor had recently become interested in sleep, especially how children's sleep is affected by families. What happens in families that can prevent children from obtaining adequate sleep? And as we are sort of venturing into this field, this topic of school start times came up. And it was something that we used to explain some of our findings uh, in terms of sleep and cognitive outcomes for kids uh, at the individual child level. We found that children who don't receive enough sleep tend to perform lower on IQ tests. 
which obviously is a bad thing. We don't want that. Uh, and as we're venturing into this area, people are talking a lot about start times. But I noticed looking at that research, although it was a very hot topic, there was a, a big gap. Almost all of the research compares two schools to each other. We have one school that starts early, one school that starts late. Is there a difference? And that's certainly valuable research, but we need more than that. The other thing I noticed is they're all middle schools and high schools. No one's looking at elementary schools. And this was alarming to me because elementary age kids were what I was studying. And the research I was doing was showing sleep is really important for them emotionally, behaviorally, and cognitively. So when I saw these efforts to delay start times for middle and high schools being achieved by flipping school start times so that the elementary school students are starting earlier so that the middle and high schools could start later, I thought, well, maybe we should figure out whether that's gonna hurt the elementary school students. Uh, we don't want to shift the burden from adolescents to younger children because if you get these younger kids who are experiencing academic difficulties, those difficulties will persist. Even if they can get more sleep later on, they will have learned less in elementary school and of course a lot of the curriculum is going to build on itself. So you're starting out disadvantaged and that's not a good thing. So is it your hope to be able to sort of sway or inform policy with this study? I think in order to sway policy, we need a lot more research. Sleep scientists have been advocating now for later school start times for several years. The way I see it is the recommendations they've come up with. So what they recommend now is 8.30 a.m. You don't want schools to start before 8.30. Just knowing what I know, I have no idea where they came up with that particular time. Why 8.30? The only study that's compared schools starting across the full sort of range of the morning is the one that we've done. And we didn't come up with a specific time. So in terms of swing policy, maybe in the future we might be able to do that if we get a better research base for what really is a good start time. Uh, it might be 8.30, it might be 8.45, it may be earlier. I think it's premature to do that. My goal at this point is to provide additional information. A lot of school districts are beginning to understand how early start times can impact their students in ways that they don't like very much. Uh, so they've decided they do want to delay times. Uh, so what my research can do just at this beginning stage is help them understand that that flipping technique where they make the elementary school start earlier, they may not want to do that so much as shifting all schools later if possible. What was the time range reflected in the schools that you studied? Uh, so we have about half of the elementary schools in the state of Kentucky starting before 8 a.m the other half after that. It would be predominantly 7.30 to 8.30. Do you think that the reason why, sort of a theory that I have, that 
a lot of schools begin before 9 a.m. because a lot of adults have to be at work at 9 a.m. Yeah. So would you advocate for pushing work schedule back as well? I mean, I think that logistically it would just sort of have to it's not echo down. E- it is <laughs> not easy to change school start times. It's not. I think that sleep scientists need to keep that in mind. We, I think, began approaching this topic as easy thing to do, just start the schools later. It's not that easy. Part of the problem is that parents have to go to work at 8 a.m. and um, elementary schools students, they're quite young. You can't necessarily just sort of say, okay, be sure to leave for school on time. And In terms of delaying work schedules, that's not a bad idea. Adults in this country are highly sleep deprived. However, if they're getting to work later, they're getting out later, and so that can also cause problems. Another issue with delaying start times is extracurricular activities. So if schools start later, they get out later, uh, which means that extracurricular activities go later into the evening. So one of the groups that tends to oppose delayed school start times would be coaches. I think that as a culture, we would be much better off if we valued sleep more. It's as important as eating. You go long enough without sleep, you will die. Uh, but while we wouldn't think about going a day without eating, many people will go a day without sleep, and college students in particular will uh, rely on the, the all-nighter. Um, if as a culture we valued sleep more, that in itself may solve some of these problems because people would be going to sleep at a reasonable time. So let's bring it to college students for a second, since yeah. since this is college campus, college radio. Um, what are some of the effects, the detrimental effects of staying up all night for an all-nighter? And how does that affect cognition, do you know? You don't have to stay up all night in order to have problems resulting from uh, sleep loss. There's a variety of different issues that it, that it can cause. Driving while you are sleepy is basically the same thing as driving while you're drunk. Um, we've put people in the test drive uh, simulator equipment and it, it's, it's no different. It's impaired because your motor coordination is going to be detrimentally affected by sleep deprivation. Not necessarily an all-nighter, just less sleep than, than you need. Uh, the other thing that's affected is your ability to focus your attention. Uh, the ability to engage in any kind of advanced cognitive process. So any kind of learning that you might need to do at the college level is going to be very difficult if you are sleep deprived. And emotion is also affected. When you didn't get a good night's sleep, you tend to be cranky and irritable. Everyone has had that experience. We actually did a study a few years ago of college students where we gave them uh, a physical activity monitor and we had them wear it for seven nights and fill out a diary. And when the data came in, we focused on just women uh, in a relationship that had lasted at least six months. I'm sorry, it's three months, at least three months. And what we found was that on nights that they didn't get very much sleep, the uh, next day they were much more sensitive to any kind of perceived rejection. 
that they receive uh, at the hands of their partner. They're more emotionally hurt. And in a study where we just averaged across the seven uh, nights, we found that those women who had received less sleep across the, the seven days, they were more likely to be physically and verbally aggressive towards their partners. So it has behavioral and emotional uh, outcomes that are affected. Uh, by, by sleep problems. Uh, there's also been research suggesting that it's associated with um, the development of obesity. And um, if you're trying to build muscle, a lot of muscle is built while you're asleep and uh, you are gonna live a shorter life. life uh, lifespan is decreased by chronic sleep deprivation. So you name it, it's impacted by sleep. So what do you recommend? for people who are trying to figure out their ideal sleep schedule or, or sleep routine? Everyone is different in terms of the amount of sleep that we need. One of the things that you can do is go to sleep, don't set the alarm, and see what time you wake up. That's a good indicator of how much sleep you need. Another indicator is sleep a certain amount, and if you're tired during the day, it probably wasn't enough. Uh, there is some normal variation. Uh, there are a variety of different things that we can do to help ourselves sleep better. Having a comfortable sleep surface, reducing the amount of light to which we're exposed during the night. Noise is disruptive to sleep. Um, we don't sleep as well when we're sharing a bed or a room with another person. Of course, the norm in um, our culture is to bed share with romantic partners. Uh, that partner snores. It can be a problem. You should send that person to the doctor because they very well may have sleep apnea. You can have a consistent bedtime routine, one that's relaxing. That helps a lot and go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time every morning. You do not want to say, hey, it's Friday night, I'm going to stay out until, you know, two or three, that way I can sleep in uh, later in the day. Of course, on Monday I've got an 8 a.m. class, um, so I'll deal with it then. That makes it very, very difficult. Um, on you. It can actually develop into something called delays, delayed sleep phase syndrome, which essentially looks just like ADHD. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. How did you get started on studying sleep? Well, like I said, um, I've always been interested in sleep. As a developmental psychologist, sleep is an interesting phenomenon. We go from sleeping the majority of the day as uh, neonates, newborns, to sleeping, you know, the typical sort of eight hours a day by the time we get to adulthood. So it's an interesting developmental phenomenon. It doesn't make any evolutionary sense because when you sleep, you're very vulnerable to predation in terms of survival. Uh, it's not a good state to be in. So why do we do it? It must be very important. Most organisms sleep. Uh, I don't think we've ever found a species that doesn't sleep. Uh, even insects have sleep of a certain kind. So obviously it's important, but to this day, 
we don't exactly know why we sleep. There are a variety of different theories, and they could all be true to a, a certain extent, but we don't really know definitively why we do it. And as a scientist, I love a mystery. Uh, I want to solve it. As a psychologist, I know I'm not going to be looking at brain mechanisms and what's going on at the cellular level, but what I can look at is what is the impact of sleep deprivation, and that's really what I've been doing. Uh, also, of course, looking at how things that occur in the environment can be disruptive uh, to sleep. That, from a psychological standpoint, is very interesting. Aside from your expanded version of this Kentucky study, do you have any other areas of research that you want to get into next? Well, in addition to expanding it to different states, we are looking at behavioral outcomes, rates of uh, suspensions, expulsions, uh, incidents of bullying and harassment. We also hope to expand it into longitudinal research so we can track whether changes in start times are associated with changes in student outcomes. I'm also very interested in looking at the incidence of aggression and problems in romantic relationships when members of a couple uh, experience sleep deprivation and looking at how concerns about the stability of the romantic relationship, how that can impact sleep. Even looking at things like falling in love, that kind of excitement that people get uh, that can actually potentially be disruptive to sleep, but also what happens when you go through a breakup, um, how sleep is affected by that, and then how those problems in sleep might translate into additional problems for the romantic relationship. Uh, that's another area that I'm hoping to get into. The, the link between sleep and aggression is a very interesting one. You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL 88.1 FM. My name is Cheyenne Holm and I'm your host today and I've got here in the studio Kevin Holm Hudson. He's an associate professor of music theory with a degree in composition and he studies Prague and experimental music. So can you tell us what Prague music is? Uh, yes, Prague music, or progressive rock, is a style of rock music that is centered uh, pretty much in Great Britain. It started in the late 60s, flourished through the 70s, had largely died out by the end of the 70s, but it still survives today thanks to the Internet and various specialized niche groups. It's essentially a very eclectic style. I mean, most most listeners, when they think of progressive rock, they think of bands like Yes or Emerson, Lake & Palmer, Genesis, Rush, bands that experimented with unusual song structures and influences from symphonic classical music brought into a rock context. But in a little bit of a wider sense, progressive rock incorporated basically everything that wasn't blues. So in corp or, or country, I would guess, I, which isn't really a British thing anyway, I suppose. But uh, progressive rock incorporated elements of jazz. It incorporated elements of experimental classical music as well as 19th century classical. So it, and, and world music as well found its way into progressive rock. It was in, you know, so it hit its peak, what, in the 70s? So based on what was going on then in music, how was it different? Well, in the, at the late 60s, the 
what's widely credited with being the first progressive rock album would be King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King, which came out in 1969. And that particular album really shows all the mature stylistic features of progressive rock right from their very first album. Some of the other bands like Yes, Genesis, Jethro Tull, they kind of went through baby steps with their first few albums. But King Crimson's first album, it was basically fully formed at that point. If we go back a couple of years, the conditions in the music industry that really made progressive rock what it was, we can thank the Beatles for that. The wide success, really, of all the Beatles music, but especially Sgt. Pepper, and what a cultural uh, landmark that was when it was released in June of 1967. It gave young bands all over, especially in Britain, permission, as it were, to do whatever they wanted in the studio. And here the Beatles were experimenting with tape effects and bringing in orchestras and Indian musicians and all this stuff. And Sgt. Pepper was such a runaway success that the record companies didn't really know what to do either. And so a band like Pink Floyd comes in, uh, Interstellar Overdrive, which not only has this extended freeform freakout in the middle of the song, but it's really two extended free-form freakouts that were overlapped on top of each other. They put that out on the album, and their label, which was EMI, same label that the Beatles had, uh, they said, okay, sure, let's put that out, and let's see if it's like you know spaghetti that sticks to the wall, and, it's a, and if it's su- successful. And the record companies basically had money to burn at this time. It was a very prosperous time for the industry. How did you get started studying this genre? I grew up with it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's the, uh, the the short answer. I think a lot of a lot of uh, professors that that the research we do is uh, things that we love or we're very much attracted to, you know, or we wouldn't do it for an extended period of time or build entire careers on it. And for me, uh, probably the first progressive rock album that I heard was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's trilogy album. This was back in 1972. I was 10 years old. The album started off with this very quiet, very evocative electronic music soundscape all on Moog synthesizer. And I thought, what is that? My 10-year-old mind had never heard anything like that before. So I was hooked from that moment. Yeah, so you consider yourself a, a lifer prog fan? I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and progressive rock is thankfully a diverse enough style that I kind of go through my different periods with different bands. So, uh, again, mentioning that some of these bands like Yes and Emerson, Lincoln Palmer were more classically influenced. There were some other bands that were going in other directions with progressive rock. For example, uh, perhaps we could talk a little bit about Magma at this point uh, for a band that a lot of people would not necessarily associate in the same category as a band like Yes. But Magma was a, a French group that their leader was trained in jazz and actually had studied, bre- studied drums briefly with Elvin Jones and put together this group. He was uh, interested in portraying this kind of music of the future from another planet. He invented a language of that planet and taught his singers to sing it. So did you uh, learn any of the Magma language? I haven't, but on the internet there, actually the name of the language is Kobayan, because it's supposed to be from this planet, Kobaya. And on the internet there are purportedly Kobayan English dictionaries. 
that uh, that you can use at least partially translate what some of the things are. Curiously, in Magma's own releases, they include full lyric sheets, but never any translations. So it's all Kobayan words, but no English so translations. You can sing along, but you don't know what you're saying. Exactly, which can be potentially <laughs> very creepy. Yeah, excellent. Um, so how would you say the genre has changed over time? I mean, there are still groups doing this sort of thing, um, but now it's I would consider it to be more of an influential element than groups that are explicitly identifying as prog. Yes, I think from a from a sociological perspective, it reaches more a kind of specialized taste public. I mean, it's almost like you think about things like Hummel figurines, you know, little china figurines and people collect those and so you have little conventions and catalogs and networks of people that collect little homo figurines and i guess in the same way you have that for prog fans you know you don't hear this music much on the radio anymore i mean there was a time when bands like yes and emerson lincoln palmer they were heard on fm radio and they sold out stadiums and yes took an album like tales from topographic oceans which is based on a footnote from a book on indian philosophy and they made a double album out of it and it went to number two on the British charts and top ten in America so that kind of that kind of time has passed but where progressive rock headed it kind of went underground for a few years during the punk and new wave years late 70s early 80s and then a number of these bands came back in a very streamlined fashion you had yes with owner of a lonely heart and Genesis had a whole new sort of pop career under Phil Collins that really had very little relation to their their prog heyday but in the mid 80s and beyond especially with the rise of the internet in the 90s a number of younger bands looked back to some of these vintage progressive rock sounds they revived some of the old instruments the mini moog synthesizer and the mellotron which was this beast of an instrument that sounded like uh, tape recorded strings and choirs and flutes and things like that and those sounds are available digitally now, but of course the whole cachet is you want to have the original instrument, even if it costs thousands of dollars and weighs several hundred pounds. You have to have that instrument. And so a number of these bands have kind of gone that, that route, where they're reviving the old styles, the old instrumentation, and so on, and they're doing new things with them. As a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, uh, Yes came to Louisville, and the opening band was a young band from Canterbury, England. And Canterbury had at one time been this kind of prog epicenter for a particular style of progressive rock. And the band was called Sid Arthur. And they had a very interesting spin on the old progressive rock sound that was coming out of Canterbury, especially with unusual rhythms. That was where Canterbury uh, style was especially known for, with unusual rhythms and kind of a jazz Influence. So there are some younger bands that are taking those older styles and doing new things with them. How does one study a genre like this that seems to have so much going on? And um, from an academic perspective, like what avenues did you take to sort of study this genre? Well, my own my own uh, academic background is as teaching music theory. So as as a theorist, I'm interested in musical structure and what makes music tick, as it were. When you get into something like progressive rock, you're, by definition, you're also looking at sort of the culture that spawned that. So my own work spills over sometimes more into popular music studies, which incorporates areas of uh, musicology and sometimes semiotics or the study of signification in music. 
and sometimes critical theory, all these other other fields that kind of feed into popular music studies. And so my own work comes out of that popular music studies discipline, but adding awareness of the musical elements as well, so that when I am publishing a paper or, or presenting an, a, a paper at a conference, I'm not only talking about the scene that spawned that particular style, but I'm also showing some musical examples and talking about what went into the structure of the music. Yeah, so can you tell us about um, specific research projects that you've done, books or articles that you've written, or or specific uh, pieces that you've studied in depth? Well, a few years ago, I published a book on Genesis's album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which was a concept album, an album that told this fantastical story. It was the last album that Peter Gabriel made with Genesis before he left for a very successful solo career. And it turned out that the more that I was researching into The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, the better a story there was behind it. So it ended up being this full-length book that looks at the structure of the album. It looks at the conditions in the music industry that spawned the album. It looks at the tensions in the band that led to Gabriel leaving the group shortly after release of the album. And uh, the rich imagery that goes into Peter Gabriel's lyrics, which draws on things as diverse as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Jungian psychology, and top 40 radio of the 60s and 70s, all of which make their appearances in that album. And we're back with Office Hours, Conversations with the UK Faculty. My name's David Cole. I'm here with Cheyenne Homan and our guest today, uh, Kevin Holm Hudson. Now, um, I've been waiting to ask you these questions. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I'm very excited about this. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about this band that I understand you're a part of called the Twiggin Bears? Now we move into what professors do in their spare time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a member of a band called the Twiggenberries, which is a British pop rock cover band. Everything is British. Uh, it's all decades from the 60s to the present. So we do a lot of 80s music. We do 90s music. We do 70s. So we do everything pretty much from the Beatles and the Stones to like Radiohead mm -hmm. and beyond that. So, And I, in that band, I play keyboards and guitar. And we all have stage identities. So when I am on stage, I'm not Kevin Holm Hudson. I'm actually Trevor Twiggenberry the eighth. Oh, the eighth long lineage of Trevor. Well, yes, it, it, and and it's kind of a throwback to the Herman's Hermit song. I'm Henry the Eighth. I am. Gotcha. Everything in the band is an inside joke. Well, um, it's very interesting that you uh, focus on the British side. It's all British covers. But my question then is, why? Uh, put together a band to play nothing but British cover music. We get that a lot. Um, I wasn't the person that actually put the band together. Our guitarist had put the band together, and apparently what spawned it was he was having a meal at the pub, the restaurant over by Fayette Mall, and he thought, this place needs a band. And he knew the owner, so he talked with the owner. The owner gave us a shot, and we had our first gig there on April 1st, 2011, and we had to tell all our friends that, no, this was not an April Fool's joke. We were actually going to be playing at the pub. So 
how does your work with the Twickenberries tie into your research here at UK? Uh, there is some connection here, right? There is. I mean, I do a, a fair amount of the arranging for the band, and certain aspects of our presentation, our image. I mean, one of the things that Trevor is especially known for is wearing a glittery cape, which is a throwback to Rick Wakeman's role in Yes. As their keyboard player, he frequently wore a cape on stage. So Trevor wears a cape as well. Uh, Of course, a lot of younger people don't really get that. But if you're of a certain age where you remember these progressive rock bands, there's something rather humorous about uh, somebody, I don't know, my age, playing Radiohead wearing a cape. There's a little bit of a, of a cognitive dissonance that comes from that. Well, you know, Radiohead, XTC, you guys, you cover quite a bit. We do, it's, we do. Uh, and, and actually in performance, and this is not something that I would expect anyone to necessarily pick up on, but I'm hoping that someday something like this will happen. In my performances as a singer, um, some of the little turns of phrase or particular ornamentations I'll put into my singing are things that I've heard directly from bootleg recordings of some of these artists. So the way Elton John, for example, would sing Rocket Man was always different live, obviously, from the studio recording. And so I may actually do these turns of phrase from the bootleg recording rather than from the studio recording that people are familiar with. But if somebody's heard the Elton John bootleg, I'm hoping somebody might pick up on that, like, oh, that's how Elton used to do it. You know, so, so there's a, that's a certain uh, element, I guess, where the research kind of comes in. It's part of the performance practice mm-hmm. where we're not merely replicating what's on the recording, although we try very hard to do that as well, but to also bring something that is hopefully a little more authentic. So you'd say that like the visual references are just as important as your musical like references. Oh, absolutely, and- absolutely. And there's also a fair amount of improvised onstage banter, which will be immediately recognizable to anybody that's seen Monty Python or This Is Spinal Tap or any number of right. other things like that. Yeah, you guys do do sketches in between some songs, right? Sometimes. And we did a memorable performance at the pub where we played Spinal Tap Stonehenge and memorably lowered our own 17-inch Stonehenge replica from the ceiling of the pub. That's actually on YouTube if people want to find that. Um, I understand that you guys have actually uh, recently ventured outside of just cover music and done your own single? Yes, we have a few originals. One of them has been released. Uh, the, others, the others are still in development. But we have an original song called Radio Random, which was uh, admittedly a kind of a self-conscious effort to recapture some of the Beatles' uh, sunshine psychedelic pop. It's fantastic. I believe we have a bit of that song here that we can play now.
Was Radio Random by the Twiggenberries, a band which has a member with which we are joined in the studio right now, Mr. Kevin Holm Hudson, professor of music theory, music history, composition, and all sorts of other musical uh, accoutrement. Rock music, rock musician by night, something like that. Yeah, Moonlights as a as a rock musician, and Daylights as a professor of music. That's right. So. Uh, he's here in the studio. We've been talking on Office Hours about Prague, and I would like to ask you about the decline of Prague. So why do you think it, it faded away? There were a couple of reasons, uh, largely outside the music industry, that directly affected what was going on. Starting in the in the mid-70s, I, I, I like to say that I think the 70s were a decade when America sort of realized its limits. You know, you had things like the energy crisis, which were brought on by the Arab oil embargo at that time. I think the first of those, there were two energy crises. I think the first one was in 1973. This led to uh, recessionary conditions in the music industry. And so the records became more expensive to produce and to promote, and bands became more expensive to tour. And by this time, 
progressive rock was kind of a victim of its own ambitions with uh, huge amounts of equipment and stage design and all the technology that went into it. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer touring with something like 40 tons of equipment in three articulated trucks, each of which was a personalized truck. There was the Emerson truck, the Lake truck, and the Palmer truck, which they toured all of. And, and, and they actually tried to tour with their own symphony orchestra, which bands now, if you have a band like the Moody Blues, it comes and they do something with an orchestra. They do something with the orchestra in that particular town. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer thought they could bring their own orchestra on the road, individually microphone each instrument so you would have the, the perfect sound experience. And it only lasted for about 10 shows before they had to drop the orchestra so there was that kind of logistical nightmare oh yeah there was that kind of overweening (laughs) ambition and then you had these kind of pressures that that happened from the outside and meanwhile you also had this economic uh slowdown in england which led to a number widespread youth unemployment a lot of dissatisfaction there a lot of young people in england basically said you know we we can't be listening to this music about mountains coming out of the sky and standing there anymore you know we have to 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 be singing more about real life punk rock came out of those that kind of disaffection and that that kind of disappointment and the record industry seized on that because hey we could take these young kids with Two guitars, bass, drum, no Mellotron, no, you know, no need to have 40 tons of equipment. They can tour much more cheaply, and it was much, much cheaper to promote. So it was a little bit of those, it was essentially kind of a switch that happened. The record industry just went behind punk rock and new wave in a big way, and a lot of the progressive rock bands were pressured to either conform or be dropped from their label. Wow. And, but you said that some of the groups resurfaced in a more sort of shiny and commercial way after that movement. Yes, also yeah, because they moment. responded to those pressures in a way. Mm. Yeah. During the break, you were telling me that you're not just research-oriented uh, around Prague. So can you tell me about some of the other popular music forms that you've studied? Well, as far as things that I've that I've published on, uh, I did a study several years ago on the Carpenters, actually, and their song "Superstar," which was a tune that originally had been written by uh, originally done by Delany and Bonnie, and uh, Bette Midler did a version of it, and so forth before the Carpenters did their version, and I traced the way that that song changed. That it was initially this sort of a very sultry song by a groupie who evidently had had a fantastic time with her rock star boyfriend. And then by the time the Carpenters got a hold of it, it became this kind of long-distance sort of fan listening to her rock star idol on the radio. And then we trace it a little farther, and we get Sonic Youth's version, where the singer is male, the voice is filtered in such a way that it sounds like somebody making a creepy phone call. And so the tune itself takes on this real air of menace by the time Sonic youth gets a hold of it and it's the same tune it's the same words but the way that the tune has been arranged and recorded uh, connotes some very different things depending on the version that you listen to so that's something that actually interests me is the way that recorded music communicates the way the sound is recorded the way that it's produced and processed in the studio and the kind of emotional affect that we get from that I'm also interested in how different musical elements will sort of migrate from one song to another. And that's actually a project that I'm working on right now, which involves Junior Walker and the All-Stars 1965 Motown song, Shotgun, 
which has this very distinctive riff all the way through the song. It's kind of that kind of pattern, and how that surfaced in a number of other 60s and 70s pop songs well into the 80s. One thinks of uh, Lip Sync's Funky Town, which has the same kind of riff, and even a quick moment in the movie Idiocracy, where the guitar harmony is playing shotgun during the climactic scene at the end of the movie. So that's another interesting one of how that particular rhythm migrated among different songs and symbolized different things as it made that trip. That's interesting. So um, are there any albums or songs that you would recommend for somebody who is interested in learning more about Prague to kind of explore? Like, where's a good place to start? Probably the best place to start would be King Crimson's album In the Court of the Crimson King, which contains a number of the elements that went into progressive rock. Certainly the instrumentation, there are elements of symphonic classicism, there are moments of just very heavy guitar thrash and jazz and free improvisation. It really has a little bit of everything. And it's an album that's that's held up remarkably well. There are a few other albums from that period that are just great examples of young men given entirely too much record industry money to make fantastic albums of the imagination. And uh, another album of King Crimson's called Lizard certainly fits into that category, as does Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes. Emerson, Lincoln Palmer's album Brain Salad Surgery is another good one from that period. And there are several other bands from this era that maybe weren't as popular as some of those, but that are certainly worth exploring. I mentioned Canterbury earlier on, and one of the most prominent bands from Canterbury during this period was a band called Caravan, which experimented with very interesting little quirky pop songs that sometimes went off into more elaborate jazz-influenced directions. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate all Thank of you for your, having me. I feel more educated musically now uh, after this. Uh, you're listening to Office Hours on WRFL FM 88.1 Lexington, Kentucky. My name is Cheyenne Homan. Uh, Brian connors Mankey is our producer. I'm joined here with David Cole and, of course, Kevin Holm-Hudson. Thanks also to Peggy Keller. Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive. <laughs>